Down in the earth beneath Jerusalem, two teams worked day and night to carve a tunnel straight through the rock. Water slashed at their ankles as the stonecutters hammered away with axes. They listened carefully. High above them on the surface, engineers used sounding to guide the cutters below on where to dig. There was no time to waste. The tunnel was urgently needed. The king had ordered it. At long last, the lead engineer underground heard the voice of his counterpart calling out from just a few feet away. The teams hurriedly smashed through the remaining rocks. As a hole opened and the tunnel met, the stonecutters kept at it, axe to axe, until the water flowing at their feet spilled over into the other half and began a slow run downhill. They had done it. An underground aqueduct. It wasn't the most polished tunnel you've ever seen. It didn't align well, and where the two sides met they had to execute a sharp turn. But they carved their triumphant tail onto a stone plaque on the side of the tunnel to commemorate this incredible achievement, describing in some detail how they had done it. Some 2,700 years passed. The tunnel may have first been rediscovered in the 1600s, but it wasn't explored until the mid-1800s. The American biblical scholar Edward Robinson and the British military officer and explorer Charles Warren are both big names in Holy Land discoveries, especially in and around Jerusalem, and both had described the tunnel in detail. But it wasn't until 1880 that things really came together. A 16-year-old student named Jacob Eliyahu was exploring the tunnel when his hand brushed up against chisel marks along the side, right where the two teams had converged. Upon further exploration, he had found the plaque carved by the stonecutters so long ago. It became known as the Siloam inscription, after the Siloam pool where the tunnel led. Biblical scholars couldn't help but notice that both the tunnel itself and the commemorative plaque lined up extremely well with several biblical passages that describe how King Hezekiah of Judah had built a tunnel back in the early 700s or late 600s BCE. The Assyrians were coming for Jerusalem, and Hezekiah built the tunnel to ensure the safety of the city's water supply. It was a fantastic feat of engineering for a king whom history records as having not a particularly smooth reign, but whom the Israelites regarded as one of their best and most favorite kings. Hezekiah led Judah at what was probably the greatest moment of peril thus far in Israelite history. So King Hezekiah, that's who we're talking about today. I'm Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. When the Kingdom of Israel fell in the year 720 BCE, it left Judah in the south as the only Israelite kingdom still standing. But its freedom was precarious. Having sacked Israel, Assyria was now gunning for Jerusalem. But one king stood between them. Scholars debate exactly in what year Hezekiah began his reign as king of Judah, but it was right around the time that Israel fell. And make no mistake, Hezekiah was very much a real person. The Assyrians wrote about him a lot. In fact, of all the eras we've been talking about, Hezekiah's reign is probably tops for alignment between the biblical account and the historical record. There are a number of discrepancies, but by and large, the Bible, the Assyrians, and the archaeology generally agree about what all went down. The last few episodes, we haven't talked that much about the Kingdom of Judah, focused as we were on what was happening in the north with the Kingdom of Israel. 
The Bible also has been focused on the North lately, so we don't actually know too much about what has been happening with Judah the last couple hundred years. But unlike Israel, with all its different kings and dynasties, the monarchy of Judah remains stable. Every king has been from the house of David, including Hezekiah, who was the 12th king. When we're looking at who were the greatest Israelite kings, it really comes down to four. David, Solomon, Josiah, who we'll talk about next time, and Hezekiah. He did two big things that earned him a spot on the Jewish Mount Rushmore. The first is that he held off the Assyrians, building up Jerusalem's defenses and preventing the kingdom from going the way of Israel. Had Judah fallen then, well, we wouldn't have had Judaism. And the second thing he did was a series of religious reforms focused on the sole worship of Yahweh and the centrality of the temple in Jerusalem. This was a big step in the direction of the Israelites' eventual monotheism. Remember, for the biblical authors, good kings are those who hold to the covenant by elevating Yahweh above all the other gods. In this respect, for the Hebrew Bible, Hezekiah was one of the best. And what makes Hezekiah one of my favorites is that he's so visible. And by that I mean a lot of what he built in Jerusalem is still there. He turned the city into a fortress, and so a lot of his work survived. Sure, we all know Jerusalem as the city of David, but really, these days, what you can physically see is also very much the city of Hezekiah. Let's back up a second. Hezekiah inherited a bit of a mess. The previous king, King Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, had turned Judah into a vassal state of the Assyrians. Partly he kind of had to, the Assyrians were too powerful for Judah to have defeated on their own, but Ahaz didn't have to have liked it so much. He was quite taken with the trappings of imperial power and the imperial gods, and as we know, the Bible frowns most gravely at those kinds of kings. Ahaz left Judah precariously situated, geographically because of the constant threat of Assyria, but also spiritually because he eroded the strength of the Israelite worship of Yahweh. Hezekiah meant to remedy both those situations. The Assyrian king Sargon II had conquered the kingdom of Israel in 720 BCE and retained a firm grip on the rest of the region. There wasn't much Hezekiah could do, but he was playing a long game. He knew that the Assyrians would eventually come for Jerusalem. So while he played the part of the dutiful vassal state, he also dedicated himself to preparations. He pushed the boundaries of the city out to allow for greater defense, and then built a 25-foot thick wall around it. It's still there today, and you can see it, especially in the Jewish quarter of the old city. As you walk around the Jewish quarter today, spare a thought for Hezekiah. It's under his expansion that this neighborhood began. To protect the water supply, Hezekiah built the tunnel I talked about in the beginning. 1,700 feet were carved straight through the rock under Jerusalem to protect the Gihon Spring, the city's water source, and the Siloam Pool, the reservoir where it flowed to. Like the wall, you too can still see the tunnel today and even wade through it from end to end for a small fee. You will need a flashlight and nerves of steel. It's so dark and claustrophobic down there that I kid you not, I felt the presence of the ancient kings of Israel, which was very cool. Hezekiah pulled in resources from all over Judah to shore up Jerusalem's defenses. Jars have been found with the letters LMLK carved on them, 
an acronym meaning for the king and stamped with his emblem, so we know that they belong to his administration. With Jerusalem battened down, Hezekiah waited. For 15 years after the kingdom of Israel fell, Hezekiah kept things pretty quiet. But then he made a costly error. In the year 705 BCE, the Assyrian king Sargon II, conqueror of Israel, died. There was a brief power vacuum as the Assyrians tried to figure out who would take over. In this momentary weakness, revolts broke out all over the empire. Hezekiah gambled that this was Judah's chance for independence, and he allied himself with everyone from the Egyptians to the Babylonians. Alas, he chose poorly. The new Assyrian king, Sennacherib, put down the various rebellions and then came for Hezekiah. He rampaged through Judah, laying waste to the other Judahite cities. Reliefs from Sennacherib's palace in his capital city, Nineveh, portray the conquest of Lachish, Judah's second major city after Jerusalem. Then, he surrounded Jerusalem and lay siege. Hezekiah was about to find out whether his new fortress Jerusalem would work. And all the while, a prophet stood by his side proclaiming, I told you so. Isaiah is one of the most important prophets of Jewish history, but he's also one of the most complicated and enigmatic. What we know about him comes from the book of Isaiah. But we also know that the book of Isaiah was written by at least two different authors writing a couple hundred years apart, and many scholars add in a third writer. Each of these writers, therefore, knew more history than the previous, but the book isn't organized with a clear chronology. So it's really hard to navigate the historical context because the emphasis is really on the theological implications of history. Last episode, we talked about Amos, the prophet in the mid-700s, who was chiefly focused on social justice as both a warning and an explanation for the fate of the kingdom of Israel. Israel fell because in their zeal for wealth, the Israelites had forsaken their obligations under the covenant with God to obey the commandments that obligated them to care for those less fortunate. Where Amos had prophesied up north, in Israel, Isaiah is down south, in Judah. And now, says Isaiah, Judah is facing the same punishment. Isaiah is the direct heir to Amos' ideas about social justice, and he picks up where Amos left off. Like Amos, Isaiah's loyalties are to the downtrodden and the poor, to those who had been victimized by inequality, the capture of power by the elites, and discrimination from social injustices that Judah's leaders have been unable or unwilling to remedy. Isaiah's particular concern is with the fate of Jerusalem. She has become a harlot, he says in reference to Jerusalem, the faithful city that was filled with justice where righteousness dwelt, but now murderers. He bemoans that Jerusalem's rulers have become rogues and the cronies of thieves, greedy for gifts. They do not judge the case of the orphan, says Isaiah, and the widow's cause never reaches them. Jerusalem, the once faithful city, had lost its righteousness as social injustice broke the covenantal relationship with God, and such actions must have consequences. These days we're paying for such sins with climate change, attacks on democracy, and the dearth of snacks on domestic flights. For Isaiah, it was the Assyrians. Ah, Assyria, says God, the rod of my anger, the staff of my fury, against a godless nation I send him. 
The Assyrians, in Isaiah's view, were on the one hand just punishment for Jerusalem's sins. On the other hand, they represented a dire existential threat to the city of God. So Isaiah identified a silver lining. The Israelite people had that special bond with God. God cared about them as individuals and as a nation, and no matter how bad things got, Isaiah insisted, God would not let Jerusalem fall. It's what we call the remnant theology, or the remnant theme. If and when catastrophe came for the Israelites' sins, a small remnant would yet remain. All would not be lost, and the people could build again on a more just foundation. The wrath of God was in service of returning Jerusalem to faithfulness and righteousness. Yet there was another prophet running around at this same time. Micah had similar views to Amos and Isaiah about the corruption and injustices of elite and the sins of the people for worshipping idols. But he disagreed with Isaiah that Jerusalem would be saved. Just as Israel fell, he predicted, so too would Judah and Jerusalem. In the short term, Micah was wrong. Jerusalem would survive the Assyrians. But in the long term, 150 years into the future, he was right as Jerusalem eventually fell to the Babylonians in 586 BCE. A key point here is that ritual sacrifice was no longer enough. For hundreds of years, the Israelites had held to a theology in which the ritual process of sacrificing animals at their temples was the correct way to expiate their sins. But the prophet Micah and Isaiah insisted that that was not what God wanted. He has told you what is good and what the Lord requires of you, said Micah. Only do justice and to love goodness and to walk modestly with your God. In other words, if you want to be a moral person, you can't just perform your ritual obligations and be done with it. You must pursue justice in accordance with the covenant with God. That goes for individuals and for the entire nation as well. This all might have been a moot point. For the Assyrians had blitzed through Judah and were now besieging Jerusalem. Hezekiah was facing his ultimate test. Hezekiah didn't realize it, but he was standing athwart a great crisis moment in Jewish history, a hinge on which the future would swing one way or the other. Israel had already recently been destroyed. Judah was all that was left. We now know that the small territory that Hezekiah held in and around Jerusalem was the single thin thread holding the Israelite past to the Jewish future. If Jerusalem fell to Sennacherib, the people could expect mass death and forced deportation, and then the gradual disappearance of their unique identity into the culture and religion of the Assyrian Empire. There would be no Judaism, no Christianity, no Islam, Monotheism had yet to take firm root in Jerusalem's religious cult, and the Syrian victory now would snuff it out for good. But that's not what happened. Somehow or other, and we're not quite sure how, Hezekiah managed to hold off the mighty Assyrian army. Both sides claimed victory, but they differ slightly in what exactly happened. The Bible records that Sennacherib's army up and disappeared in the midst of the siege, Clues point to a sudden plague that may have devastated the Assyrians, or perhaps an urgent matter back home compelled Sennacherib's sudden departure. But Jerusalem didn't get off scot-free. The Assyrian record admits that Sennacherib didn't capture Jerusalem. 
Instead, say the Assyrians, Hezekiah chose to pay enormous sums of gold, silver, and material goods to the Assyrian king. The Bible also records this payment. Judah became, once again, an official vassal state of the Assyrians. But after the year 701, Sennacherib seems to have left them alone. A much smaller version of the original Judah was still more or less an independent Israelite kingdom. This was the great hinge moment that turned defeat into a miraculous victory. As the prophet Isaiah had insisted, the Jerusalem remnant had indeed survived. What other conclusion could there be but that the Israelite god, Yahweh, had bested the Assyrian gods? Was this not definitive proof of the strength of Yahweh? Hezekiah had been priming his people for this moment. He not only built up Jerusalem's defenses, but also embarked on major campaign of religious reform. His goal was to reverse the idolatrous policies of his father, King Ahaz, in favor of what we call centralization. That meant centering worship at the temple in Jerusalem and making sure that Yahweh was the only deity worshipped there. Hezekiah closed down the shrines and sanctuaries around Judah that the Israelites had been using, trying to force everyone to make the trip to Jerusalem to fulfill their religious and ritual obligations. He removed any symbols that smacked of paganism, especially idols and images. From now on, Hezekiah insisted that the temple in Jerusalem would be the only legitimate site of worship for Yahweh, and Yahweh would be the only legitimate god worshipped there, and the temple priests the only legitimate priests. Hezekiah was turning David's city and Solomon's temple into the central sacred spot for the religion of Yahweh. Of course, all this had the effect of rather conveniently increasing Hezekiah's power. That was part of the point. With so little left of Judah's original territory, Hezekiah wanted to consolidate and enhance his rule. In centralizing the temple in Jerusalem, Hezekiah was able to take command of the religious structure empower his own priests, and ensure Jerusalem's status as the most important place in the kingdom. But it wasn't all cynical. The king, the prophets, and the people all understood that God had allowed Israel to be destroyed because of its idolatry. This seemed to argue in favor of more focused worship on Yahweh, not less. Hezekiah's religious reforms were both an act of piety and a savvy political maneuver. Not everyone was happy with this. If you didn't live in Jerusalem, you were reluctant to abandon your hometown sanctuary with having to travel. And certainly the priests at these other sanctuaries didn't appreciate their sudden loss of authority for the big shots in Jerusalem. And for people accustomed to worshipping not just Yahweh, but also other gods in other instances, the idea of prohibiting their worship at Jerusalem seemed like a major cultural shift. But between the religious reforms and the triumph over the Assyrian army, this was a powerful push in favor of Yahweh, moving us further along the evolutionary route to monotheism. And that's really kind of the whole point of this history. For the Israelites, it was hard to miss the fact that when idolatry prevailed, so did the Assyrians, as just punishment for their sins. But when Yahweh was centralized in the sacred temple in the holy city, the Israelites were able to stave off defeat. Remember, in the Hebrew Bible, good kings worship Yahweh and reject other gods. In becoming probably the first king to mandate the centralization of Jerusalem and the temple, Hezekiah gave a big shove towards what would become monotheism. That enshrined him as one of the very best kings of Jewish history.
The Siloam inscription is the plaque found on the wall of Hezekiah's tunnel underneath Jerusalem. It remains one of the oldest records ever found written in Paleo-Hebrew script, what in a couple more centuries were turned into Hebrew as we have it today. At the time the inscription was found in the late 1800s, Jerusalem was under the control of the Ottoman Empire, which removed the plaque and sent it off to Istanbul's archaeology museum. Israel has tried multiple times, most recently in 2017, to repatriate the original stone back to Israel as an historic Jewish cultural artifact. Turkey maintains that it was the property of the Ottoman Empire, of which Turkey is now the rightful heir. It's one of a few other historic Israeli artifacts that remain in Turkey's possession. But back to Hezekiah. In spite of all his efforts, it was also clear that by 701 BCE, Judah had been largely defeated by the Assyrians. Judah was in ruins and most of its territory was lost. Jerusalem and its environs were all that remained. Hezekiah was forced to pay an expensive annual tribute to Sennacherib, and in any case, within a few years of the Assyrian siege, Hezekiah died. Where Hezekiah embodied the very best qualities of a king true to Yahweh, his son and successor Manasseh most decidedly did not. Sonny Boy was about to go down as just about the worst king in Jewish history. But then, just when Judah had sunk so low, it was risen up again. That's next episode. As always, my website is jewodonno.com and my email is jewodonnopodcast at gmail.com. I am finally catching up on emails, so if you wrote me within the last few weeks, I will get back to you shortly. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lehitraot. See you later.